and chapter 1. And we're going to continue uh, where we left off last time. We're thinking about the model uh, church. And we want to begin reading in verse 5. That's where we left off previously. Verse 5, where Paul writes to the Thessalonians, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. For you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his eternal word this evening. Now, when we were last together, we were thinking uh, of this Thessalonian church, and we said that as this chapter unfolds, uh, we get a picture of the model church, that there are five characteristics in all that the Lord brings before us, and that Paul raises that were matters of gratefulness unto the Lord. And so if we uh, reflect back on the, uh, on the outline there, if I can get this thing to work. There we go. All right, so we're, we looked last time at how it was an energetic church in verse 3. We saw how that it is an elect church in verse 4. And then we think also tonight that it's an exemplary church in verses 5 through 7. Uh, it's an uh, evangelistic church in verses eight, verse 8 and an expectant church in verses 9 and 10. So we want to start right there in verse 5 with the thought that we have in the Thessalonian church an exemplary church. And Paul says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Well, let's say this before we say anything else, that the gospel always comes by means of hearing the word of God. It's by the written word of God that men are saved. The Bible says in Romans ten seventeen that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And I'm sure, like me, you've heard a few testimonies in your time, and maybe you thought there was something a little bit fishy about that testimony. I remember hearing the testimony of... Uh, a folk singer one time, John Denver. Some of you may remember John Denver. And uh, John Denver uh, gave a testimony in an interview one time in which he said that he was a born-again uh, Christian. And when he was asked how that came about, he said, well, one night I was driving uh, home from a concert and I saw a shooting star going across the sky. And in that moment, I was born again. Well, I don't know what happened to him in that moment, but he certainly wasn't born again. Uh, people aren't born again by shooting stars. They're born again uh, by the the word of God. And of course, the word of God is not just mere words. Rather, the preaching of the gospel is the power of God 
unto salvation. That's what Paul says in Romans 1 and 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul's preaching at Thessalonica had been in power. The Greek word is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. He was a dynamite preacher, and he'd come into that city expectant. He'd come into that city anticipating uh, results from his preaching uh, because he came in the strength and the power of the Holy Ghost. His reliance was upon the Spirit of God. I love what uh, John Phillips uh, says of, of this particular verse. He says that Paul did not rely on excellent hermeneutics. That's biblical interpretation. His knowledge of homiletics, the skill of preaching, his first-class education, his mastery of the original languages, his natural eloquence or his powerful personality. It was not his outlines, his illustrations, or his sincerity that produced such spectacular results as always followed in the train of his preaching. It was the Holy Spirit from start to finish. Everything about Christianity is supernatural. No wonder we have to rely on the Spirit of God. So Paul preached in power and in the Holy Ghost. And notice there, he says in verse 5, in much assurance. Now the word N at the, at the uh, latter part of that statement is not repeated in the Greek language. So that we could read it this way. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and much assurance. The assurance here is not assurance that was given to the Thessalonians. The assurance was the, the confidence that Paul had in the message he was preaching. He came as a preacher of conviction. He preached passionately the gospel, believing its message to be true. He believed what he preached. preached and not only did he believe what he preached, but he practiced what he preached. How, for, how vital is that? There was no discernible difference between the messenger and the message. Notice he says, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. He says, we came preaching in power and in the Holy Ghost and much assurance. And you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Brethren, how important it is that our walk marries up with our witness. That we're not preaching one thing and living something else. We've got to live out what we believe, and anyone can give a talk, but our talk and our testimony go hand in hand, and a bad testimony quickly unravels a good talk. It's vital that the preacher lives out his preaching. And Paul's message was dynamic because he rested in the power of the Spirit, and he practiced what he preached, and here's the result. It says in verse 6, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord. And the word ye is emphatic in the Greek. He says, and ye, you really believed. He says, you became followers of us and the Lord. Now it may seem strange there, the wording that he says, firstly, followers of us and then of the Lord. You know, we would probably think, well, maybe he should have said, you became followers of the Lord and us. And put the Lord first and and himself second. And it maybe even seems to our minds to be a little bit proud or prideful in, in that respect. But that was the historical order of their experience. Now I want you to get this. People must first believe in the messenger 
before they can believe the message. In other words, they have to believe in your credibility as a witness before they'll listen to what you have to say. So in practical terms of discipleship, men follow their mentors before they follow Christ. That's the historical experience. Paul follows the Lord, and his converts initially follow him. Now in time, as they mature, they will follow the Lord. They'll stand on their own two feet and rely less upon Paul. But this is the nature of discipleship, and it's one of the vital aspects of gospel preaching. You see, we're following Christ, and we're inviting others to follow Christ, to join with us, and to do as we have done. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for a moment, if you will, and at verse 16. Notice what Paul says to the Corinthian believers there. He says, wherefore, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 16, He says, wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers, notice what he says, of me. Be followers of me. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't say, uh, you know, do as I say and don't do as I do. He says, don't do as I do. Follow me. I'm setting an example here. Look in uh, chapter 11 of that book and verse 1. He says, chapter 11 and verse 1. He says, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, again, he makes a similar statement. Philippians 3, 17. He says, brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as you have us for an ensample. So people are following us first. You know, sometimes we may say, well, you know, my witness never gets anywhere. Well, maybe there's an issue with our walk. Maybe there's a problem with our consistency as a Christian. Maybe there's a very evident flaw that others see and they think, oh, it's just talk with him. It's just talk with her. But Paul came with much assurance. He lived out what he believed and people followed him. And then in following him and believing the message that he brought, they followed the Lord. Now, having heard Paul preach, having observed the kind of man that he was, the Thessalonians, notice, received the word in verse 6, in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And the word received is, a, is, a, is an interesting Greek word. We'll come up against it again or we'll, come, we'll meet it again. It's the word dekomi. And it means to, uh, to welcome someone. It means to, uh, to receive a visitor or a, or a friend with open hospitality. It means to take somebody by the hand, to reach out and shake their hand and to greet them. That's what this word means. So here they were and they heard the gospel and they believed that Paul was a credible witness and they saw that he was living out the truths that he preached and they received the truth. They received the word of God. They opened their hearts to Christ and they welcomed him into their lives. They welcomed him despite the cost to themselves. They received the word, notice, with much affliction. In fact, life became very difficult for these people from this point on. You know, sometimes we get the impression or we maybe give the impression that if you trust in Christ, all your troubles will be over. <laughs> 
Well, usually that's not the way it works, is it? You trust in Christ and your troubles begin. I remember when I trusted in Christ and told the fellows I was working with that I trusted, I actually thought they'd have a party. I was so naive. I thought they'd celebrate with me. And they were incensed that I had become a Christian. I mean, they, these were fellows that I went out with on a Friday night drinking. I went drinking with them. You know, it was, it was the life and soul of the party with them the week before. The next week, I was a pariah. The next week, they wanted nothing to do with me. And sometimes that's how it is in the Christian life. Without any effort, you make enemies almost instantly. And that's what happened with the Thessalonians. You see, the Jews and the pagans in Thessalonica were going to make life difficult for them. We've already seen in Acts 17 how they chased Paul out of town, how they brought Jason before the law courts, and the, and the affliction, the persecution didn't end there. So they understood fully that if they believed in Christ, there would be problems brought to their doorstep. And yet, despite those troubles... They received the word. They welcomed the word of Christ into their life with joy of the Holy Ghost. And verse 7 says, In doing that, they became examples, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. You see, as a local church, they sent out a message to all around, to those in Macedonia, their own region, to those in the region of Achaia, where Corinth was, and even beyond where Corinth was, people had heard the message and saw the pattern and the example of the Thessalonian church. Now, the word ensample is a, is a very interesting word there. It's the Greek word tupos. Tupos, and it, and it means a number of things. It has, sort of, it has a, an evolving definition uh, as Scripture uses it. And uh, the word is tupos, T-O-U-P-O-S, and it literally means type. That you became a type or a model. You were a model to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Now this word is first used in Scripture, John chapter 20, verse 25, and it refers to a scar left by a blow. If you want to look at John chapter 20 and verse 25, this is this moment when Thomas returns to the disciples having missed the first appearance of the Lord Jesus to them all. And uh, he is taken aback by their testimony. And of course, uh, he uh, protests, he expresses his doubt. And in verse 25 of that chapter, it says, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands, you see this word, the print of the nails. That's two posts. If I see the scar, if I see the scarring of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, what is a scar? Well, you know, a scar is, uh, is, a, is a really a, a, a past experience. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's the present reality of a past experience. You see a scar and you, and you remember how you got that scar, don't you? You know, I have a little scar on my forefinger. I'll tell you how I got the scar. I remember it very well. In fact, I've lost a little bit of my finger. You probably can't see it from there, but I've lost a little bit of my finger. And I was out one time knocking on doors, witnessing to people. And I knocked on this door, and there was nobody there. And I knocked again, and there was nobody there. And I put my hand through the letterbox with a leaflet, and my hand got stuck in the letterbox. box. 
I tried to pull my hand out and it wouldn't budge. And I thought, oh, that must have shut down on my hand some way. I couldn't get my hand back out. And then I felt the breath of a dog's nose (laughs) on this finger. And I realized that a dog had grabbed my finger on the other side of the door and that I was completely trapped. The dog wasn't letting go. It just grinded down on my finger. And so I was standing there thinking, well, what do I do? I can't wait for the owners to come back (laughs) and release me. The dog clearly isn't going to release me. So I had only one choice. Take a deep breath, Dave. And went and pulled my hand out. And then I looked at it and actually my finger was in an L shape. There was an L shaped piece that had been taken off that the dog was enjoying for its lunch. And so, long story short, if you have a close up of my finger, you'll see a very clear tooth mark of a dog on that finger. So when I see that sometimes... I remember that fateful moment and now when I put leaflets through the doors, I'm like a martial arts expert. I put it in, you know, because I'm not, I don't want a dog to grab me on the other side. But that's a two post, a scar left by a blow. And it also refers to any image stamped by a blow, such as the imprint on a seal or on a coin. So coins are stamped with an image. Same idea. But then as this word uh, develops, uh, we find that it also later on refers to idols uh, and to images. If you look in Acts chapter 7 and verse 43. Acts chapter 7 and verse 43. This is Stephen's great sermon at the outset of church history. And in the midst of that wonderful message, he says in verse 3, condemning the Jews, ye, yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your God, Remphan. Figures, there's the word, tupos, which you made to worship them. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. And, and that idea is figures, is of, of idols, of, of false gods, of images of gods that were imprinted upon these idols. Then there is the idea of a pattern in general. It sort of develops uh, along the way and becomes a a pattern of things uh, in general. And uh, in verse 44, he says, Our fathers uh, had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, and he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion, two posts, the type, the pattern that he had seen. And then finally in in Titus chapter 2 and verse 7, we see that this word becomes associated with a pattern of life, not just an imprint upon an inanimate object uh, or a scar of any kind, but a pattern of life. In chapter 2 and verse 7, and uh, Paul employs the word here, and he says, In all things, showing thyself a pattern, a, a, a tupos, a, a type of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, and, and sincerity. So what he's saying here, and he says to them, you became in samples to others. He's saying, you became the pattern for others. You became the type for others. You became the standard that others had to live up to. And the very next verse there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8 indicates one of the ways in which they did that. They were not just an exemplary church insofar as they were set up as a standard, but they were an evangelistic church. Look at verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. 
Your faith to God's word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Now, this was a church, folks, that was on fire. This church was alive. Uh, I mean, they were witnessing to people and they were winning people to Christ. You know, remember geographically where they were placed. They were up in the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. There were, there were ships that were coming from all over the world into that portal city and were trading there uh, with people from all around the globe. They were situated geographically on the Ignatian Way that ran east to west and west to east, leading into Europe and into Asia on the trade routes. And so they were perfectly located to get the gospel out. And that's what they did. When Paul says, from, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, the word means reverberated. Like a herald's trumpet. They echoed out the truth of the gospel. They gave the gospel to those they met at the hub of that trade center and it echoed out around the world. Their outreach was local. It was national. It was international. And that's what we ought to have as our, as our goal as a church. We ought to certainly try to reach people right here in this locality. But then we should move even beyond this locality and be concerned about other people in other parts of our country. And then beyond our country, out into the, all the world as the Lord Jesus commanded. People who entered the city of Thessalonica were impacted by the Christianity of the believers there. You came into that town, there was a good chance someone was going to witness to you. There was a good chance someone was going to speak to you about Christ. The traders who stopped in Thessalonica were soon confronted by the active evangelism of the Thessalonian church. And those who believed as a result of that evangelism carried the message far and wide. Here's how Charles Swindoll uh, describes it. He says, as Paul moved through Macedonia, where Thessalonica was located, and Achaia, where Corinth was located, he would start to proclaim the gospel, then stop short in amazement. Still echoing down the canyons and through the streets was the word of the Lord spoken by Thessalonian believers. Their Christianity was contagious and spreading faster than Paul could travel. So you can imagine Paul's surprise. Paul's a pioneering missionary. He's used to going into places where no one has heard the name of Jesus. He comes into the city of Corinth, he starts witnessing the people, and somebody says, you know what, I heard that before. You heard it before? Where did you hear it before? Let me think. It was whenever I was up in Thessalonica, I went up there in business, and somebody spoke to me in the marketplace about this. And Paul saw how their witness was expanding around the world. And so in that respect, he commends them as an evangelistic church. But they're not only the model of an evangelistic church, they were an expectant church. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God. 
Now here's another reason why Paul was thankful for this church. Remember in verse 2 he said we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. So these are things he's thankful for and he's thankful uh, for the expectancy of the Thessalonian church. You see the reality was that the conversion of the Thessalonian believers was there for everyone to see. Like Paul their witness was not mere words but it was supported by a complete change in their lives and in their religious outlook. Notice they had turned to God from idols in verse 9. You know what that's called? Repentance. You know, I wish we had more preaching on repentance today. A lot of people are invited to come to Jesus, but not to contemplate their sin before they come to Jesus. Well, these people thought about their sin. And they repented. But notice importantly the, the, the wording. And we must be careful about the wording here. They didn't turn from idols to God. They turned to God from idols. Now there's a slight difference there. You see, there was no reformation in preparation for faith. They exercised faith and it changed their life. There was repentance and faith which brought about regeneration, new life, that made the idolatry that was the hallmark of their previous lives completely redundant. When I pastored in Southern Ireland, I used to go into Roman Catholic homes. You know, every now and then I'd be invited in and I'd go into a Roman Catholic home and I'd sit down with my Bible and I'd begin to witness to these dear friends, these Roman Catholic friends. And very often in the home you'd see maybe a, a statue of Padre Pio on the, uh, on the hearth or on the mantelpiece or you'd see a, a statue of Mary or a crucifix or very often they had a picture, the sacred heart of Jesus. You've seen that picture, haven't you? And there's a picture of Jesus on the cross and the, his chest is open, buried open and there's a heart there and a crown of thorns around his heart. And so I would witness to these people in the midst of all of this idolatry. And the penny would drop with them. They'd come to an understanding that they could be saved apart from the church. They could be saved apart from religious uh, ceremony. And they could be saved apart from works. And they would trust in Christ. And I would go back and I would be uh, discipling these these, uh, new believers you go back the first week, nothing changed. Second week, nothing changed. And then you go back a few weeks later and you'd find that the home had been redecorated. And the picture, that sacred heart picture was gone. And the statues were gone. And I would never make a big deal about it. But I'd just say, oh, I see you've redecorated. And they would often say, oh, we don't need that stuff anymore. You see, they turned to God from idols. By the way, it's not just Catholics have idols. Protestants have idols. I remember witnessing to a fellow in North Belfast one time. We got to the end of the witness and I said to him, Thomas, would you like to trust Christ as your Savior? He says, yes, I would. I says, let's bow our heads right now and you can trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And he says, hang on a minute. He says, there's something I need to do. He got up. He walked out of the room, didn't say where he was going. I assumed he was going to the bathroom or something. I thought it was an unusual time to leave for the bathroom. And off he went. And he came down a few moments later. And he had a picture in his hand. And he put it face down. And he says, now I can pray. And so we prayed and I led him to the Lord. And out of curiosity, I said, if you don't mind me asking you, what is this? What's this picture? 
And he held it up and it was, a, it was the emblem of one of the paramilitary organizations. You see, he had been completely devoted to that way of life. And he realized that that had to go. That he couldn't carry on subscribing to terrorism. And that that idol had to come off his wall before he gave his heart to the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul was talking about here. They turned to God from idols. And I love what Ray Stedman says in this respect. He says, you do not leave your idols for some reason and painfully try to find God. What happens is that you discover something of the beauty, the glory, and the greatness of God. And seeing that and wanting it, you're willing to forsake the cheap and tawdry things you once believed could satisfy. They didn't need their idols anymore. They had found the living and the true God and they would serve him. Notice that's what it says, that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, this matter of service is really interesting because in the ancient world, people had no concept of serving a God. Remember, if you've got an idol... What do you do with an idol? You ask things off the idol. You ask the idol to serve you. You get into trouble, you petition the idol. If you're a Hindu, if you get into trouble, you bring food and, and, and you bring other sacrifices to the idol. In Catholicism, uh, people, whenever they have various difficulties in life, will call upon particular saints who are allocated to their particular conundrum. And they say, I'll call upon Saint so-and-so and he will help me. And so the idol is always serving me. And that was the understanding in the ancient world. You didn't leave the idol and say, I must serve that idol. No, you think, this God, I'm going to appeal to him and he's going to serve me. And so, you know, what you serve is, is what you worship. And what you worship is what you serve. And so these people were worshipping and serving idols, but now they're serving the, the living God. As one writer puts it, no Greek or Roman could take in this idea of serving a God. There was no room for it in his religion. His conception of gods did not admit of it. His, if life was to be a moral service rendered to God, it must be a God quite different from any he was introduced to by ancestral worship. So these people didn't just trust the Lord and leave it there. They understood they were saved to serve. You see, a lot of Christians don't get this. A lot of Christians get saved and they think my job is to come to church. No, that's, that's not our job. It's part of what we do, but it's not all of what we do. We're saved to serve the Lord. And they understood that. And that's one of the central themes that becomes clear in this book. They had been gloriously saved. They had, uh, were saved for sure. Uh, their faith was not now confined to some past uh, Christian experience. But it opened the door, as you'll see, to a future hope. It says, they turned from God to idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Now, the coming of the Lord is one of the recurrent themes of this book. Indeed, both of these books, First and Second Thessalonians. In every chapter, there's a reference to the coming of the Lord. Look in chapter 2 and verse 19. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? 
Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Chapter 3 and verse 13. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Chapter 4 and verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Chapter 5 and verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 7 of Second Thessalonians. And to you who are troubled... Rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Chapter 3 and verse 5. And the Lord direct your hearts unto the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. So these people were saved and they were serving, but they were serving in the light of the Lord's soon appearing. Now this is the thing. If you believe the Lord is going to appear soon, you'll get busy serving. Because he might come today. In fact, this is a very interesting term here in verse 10. And to wait for his son. The Greek word is a composite word, anamenu. Let's have a look to that. It says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, the Greek word is anamenu. And it's a composite word made up of two words, ana, which means up, and meno, which means to wait. So they weren't just waiting for the Lord, but get this, they were waiting up for the Lord. There's a difference. You see the, you see the difference? You know, sometimes um, we're waiting for something, but in other times I'm waiting up for someone. I may be waiting for someone to come, but other times I'm waiting up for them to come. Let's think about this. The word indicates imminence, something that can happen at any moment. Indeed, the word is in the present tense, meaning that they were expecting this to happen at any time. So this word carries the notion of imminence. One only waits up for someone they expect to soon appear. So the Thessalonians had turned to Christ in one great decisive act. They had turned from idols and they were serving the Lord whilst waiting up for the Savior to come. They were like a parent waiting up for a teenage daughter. Those of us who've had daughters... We'll know that moment, won't you? You know, your daughter says, I'll be in at this time. And you, even if you go to bed, you're not going to sleep, are you, till you hear the key in the door and you know they're home safely. You know, I, I told you about our daughter on Sunday. and She's giving more sermon illustrations than anyone else alive. And uh, she said she'd be in at a certain time. You could be sure she wouldn't be in at that time. So one night I thought, I'm going to cure her of this. I said, are you be in tonight, 10 o'clock or 10.30, whatever it was. She was about 16, 17 years of age. I said, you be in at that time. And she said, okay, I'll be in that, I'll be in at that time. Well, of course, she didn't come in at that time. 
So I went to bed at half ten, turned all the lights off, she came home. About eleven o'clock I hear the key going in the door. And uh, she comes in, like all good teenagers do, sneaking in. She closes the door quietly. And I thought, I'm going to fix her. So I got up and I walked down our hallway, which was a narrow passageway, dark as night. And there was a little niche in the passageway. And I just stood in the niche. And I waited for her to go past me as she was sneaking back to her bedroom. And just when her ear was level with my mouth, I went, (laughs) and she screamed. She screamed the house. In fact, I, I had to run and find the lights because I couldn't stop her screaming. You see, I was waiting up for her. I was expecting her. You know, sometimes in the course of my ministry, I go away for days on end. And uh, if I go away for days on end, uh, Hazel will be left at home and she'll be waiting for me to come back. But she's not waiting up. At other times, I may travel two or three hours away to preach somewhere. And she might say, what time will you be back? And I'll say, I'll be back at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or midnight or something. And she might say, I'll wait up for you. So when I turn my car into the street and I see the lights are still on, I'm glad. I think, oh, she's waiting up for me. But if I'm going for two weeks, she's not going to wait up for me. Someone say, I'm not going to bed till you get back. <laughs> she's going to bed. She's waiting, but she's not waiting up. There's no imminency. But if I say, I'll be back about this time, she's expecting me back. And so there's a sense that I'm going to come at any moment. And that's what the Thessalonians understood. The Lord is going to come at any moment. Now the Lord, we're later told, is going to come first of all to the earth to receive his children unto himself. And then he's going to come in a second advent to the earth to establish his kingdom. So if you can see on the timeline there, you have the uh, past ages. That's everything that takes place before Calvary. All that happens in the gospel to back into the Old Testament through the law all the way back to the beginning. And then you have the cross. And of course, after the cross, you have the day of Pentecost and the church is born. We enter into the church age. That's where we are now. And so we should be waiting up. We're expecting the Lord to come. He's going to come to the air. He's going to come for his saints. I want you to get that. There's a very clear difference here between what we call the rapture and the revelation. In the revelation, he comes with his saints. And in between those two events on earth, you have the seven-year tribulation period. When the Lord comes with his saints, then that is followed by his millennial kingdom on earth when the wolf lies down with the lamb and leads ultimately into eternity and the future ages. Now, people say, well, doesn't that make three comings? He came at Bethlehem, he comes comes in rapture, and he comes in revelation. But don't we only believe in a second coming? You've got to get this distinction clear in your mind. When he comes uh, to the air, he's coming for his saints, but he's not coming to the earth at that point. He's just coming to the air. So he hasn't come a second time to the earth. He's coming for us to rescue us. When he comes the second time, he comes in revelation to the earth. And he sets his feet down upon the Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14. 
So it's one coming, but there's two aspects. The first part is the rapture. The second aspect we call the revelation. The revelation is the second coming proper. So the coming for his saints is an imminent uh, appearing. It is an act that is focused upon the church. It could happen at any time without warning. Now, let's be clear about this. There are no signs necessary for the rapture to happen. No signs. You know, people say to you, oh, all the signs of the times are here. Well, certainly there are things that would parallel with the signs of the times. But understand this, that when those signs actually materialize, there will be an exponential rise in their, in their frequency and in their intensity. So what we're seeing now is maybe birth pangs, but the signs of the times don't have to actually be in place for the rapture to happen. So the coming of the Lord for his saints could happen at any time. It's imminent. The coming with the saints will happen after certain prophecies have been fulfilled, including the coming of the Antichrist. And this focus is not upon the church, but upon Israel, believing Israel particularly. So the biblically aware Jew living on the earth prior to the second coming, prior to the revelation, will be able to anticipate the second coming of the Lord and understand how events are unfolding before him if he's a believer. So, for example, when the Antichrist breaches his agreement with Israel, the believing Jew upon the earth will know that it's three and a half years until Christ comes. He knew that. And God has always dealt with Israel this way. I want you to get this because there's a distinction between how God deals with Israel and how God deals with the church. God always gives Israel a very specific timeline. Look with me in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, Abraham is promised a land. And as that promise is given, he is told that it won't be realized until after his descendants have been enslaved in a foreign land, and then it will happen in the fourth generation of their captivity. So if you go to Genesis 15 and verse 14, uh, sorry, verse 13, he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and notice this, and they shall afflict them 400 years. God gives them a specific time for their captivity in Egypt. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, that's the fourth generation of those held captive, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now if you go to Exodus chapter 6, we come to the book of Exodus where the realization of that prophecy happens. Exodus chapter 6, and if you look at verse 16. It says that these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Now remember, Levi went into Egypt with Jacob, uh, following uh, the time of Joseph, or during the time of Joseph. Uh, these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 130 and 7 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath. Amram and Izar and 
Hebron and Uziel and the years of the life of Koath were 133 years. And the sons of Merari, Mahali and Mushi, these are the families of Levi according to their generations. And Amram took him Jochebed, his father's sister to wife, and she bare him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137 years. Now notice there's four, four generations from Levi to Moses. You have Levi, Kohath, Amram, Moses. That's what God told the Jews would happen. He says, you're going to go into a strange land. Your descendants, Abraham, will go into a strange land. They'll stay there for 400 years. And then the fourth generation, they shall be released. They'll be brought back out again. So God gives them a timeline. Later on in the prophets, he does the same thing concerning the Babylonian captivity. He tells them, you're going to go to Babylon for 70 years. They, 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 uh, the end of the Babylonian captivity, or, or the beginning of it, uh, rather, is in 586 BC. There's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes and there are three waves of, uh, of, of, uh, cap, of captives taken. But that all ends in 586 BC. At that point, the nation of Judah and Israel is in captivity. What happens 70 years later, 516 BC, they're back in the land. 70 years, like God said, we happen. That's a matter of history. Daniel says that from the moment of King Artaxerxes gives a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there are 69 weeks until Messiah comes. Now we know that's 69 weeks of years, 483 years. God says to them, the day that Artaxerxes puts his pen to paper and signs a decree that, uh, that Jerusalem can be rebuilt, there's 483 years till the Messiah comes and is cut off. In other words, he's going to die. Now, if you were to go back and work that out, you'll find out that from the moment that Artaxerxes signs that document to the time that Jesus begins his Passion Week, his triumphal entry, is 483 years. God gave them a timeline. And that's always been the way with the Jewish people. It's the same with the second coming. From a Jewish perspective, The Jews are given a timeline. From the moment Antichrist signs his agreement with Israel, believing Jews know that it's seven years till the kingdom comes. And the king comes. But the church, you and I living in the church age, can set no dates. Because for us, the coming of the Lord, with respect to the rapture, uh, may not be told. It's imminent. Hence, The Thessalonians were said to be waiting up for him to come. And notice they're waiting up for him to come to do something very specific. They're waiting up for him to come that they might be delivered from the wrath to come. So in that respect, we understand that there's two events that are connected here. In in, uh, verse 10, uh, Paul connects the waiting up uh, and and the rescue of the church Uh, with a resurrection. And uh, those two events are linked, and you'll find that as we get into chapter 4. The dead in Christ shall rise first, there's resurrection, then we who are alive and remain are caught up to meet them in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. There's rapture. These two actions mean the same thing for both living and dead believers. They mean that we go into the presence of Christ and that we are glorified. Now, these believers were expecting to be delivered. And that carries the notion of rescue. We'll see this very clearly as this book unfolds, that they're expecting to be rescued. 
They're anticipating being delivered from the wrath to come. And that's an eschatological phrase, and it refers to the tribulation period. They're expecting to be rescued from the tribulation period. And so that's what they were waiting up for. Now, that future event that they're waiting up for, that wrath that was to come, obviously is referring to the events that unfold in the book of Revelation. Look with me for a moment in Revelation chapter 6, because I want you to see how consistently the book of Revelation refers to God's wrath during the tribulation period. The word is, uh, is orge, O-R-G-E, in the Greek, and it refers always to God's wrath, to his judgment in some sense. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16, we're at the sixth day of judgment. It says, and those who were subject to the judgment said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Look in chapter 11 and verse 18. Chapter 11 and verse 18. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophet. Notice, thy wrath is come. These people were delivered from the wrath to come. In Revelation, the wrath is come. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 19. It says, And the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. His wrath has come. Chapter 19 and verse 15. It says, And out of his mouth, speaking of the Lord Jesus and his glorious appearing, his revelation, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He's on his way to the earth. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So in Thessalonians, they're expecting the wrath to come. In Revelation, the wrath has already come. It's here. And what's interesting is between Revelation 6 and Revelation 19, there's not a single mention of the church. Not a single mention. The church simply isn't there. The church disappears in chapter, the end of chapter 5 and reappears in chapter 19. The end of chapter 19. The church isn't present in the book of Revelation. In fact, if you were to go back there and, and uh, to read the, uh, this book, if you were to go back to chapter 1, you get the outline. In the very first chapter of Revelation, the Lord says to John, verse 19, Write the things which thou hast seen. That is, as he's witnessing Jesus in his judicial robes, as revealed in chapter 1. The things which are, are that is, the, the uh, seven churches of Asia, which he's now about to give the message of the Lord uh, to. And then the things which shall be hereafter. Now, there's a very clear outline of the book of Revelation. John says, that I'm writing about things that are. This is how Jesus is. I'm writing about the things that I've seen. I'm writing about the things which are, these seven churches that are contemporary to my time. And there are messages to them from the Lord. And then about things to come. Now, when he writes about the seven churches of Asia, and Lord willing, someday we may study this. But the seven churches of Asia give you a timeline of the church age. 
You start with the church at Ephesus, the church that lost its first love. That takes you right back to the days of the early church. And you work your all, way, all your way through to Laodicea, the church that makes God sick, the compromising church. That's the modern church. And you have all of her church history set out before you. Now, when you get to Laodicea, once the message of Laodicea is finished, what happens in chapter 4 and verse 1? It says that John hears a voice that says, come up hither. There's a rapture takes place. He's suddenly caught up and he's brought before the throne of God. And he sees the saints of God kneeling before the throne of the Lamb. And they're already crowned. They've received their reward. In chapters 5 and 6, sorry, chapters 4 and 5, discuss the the Lamb upon his throne and and how he alone is worthy to open the seals and, and so on. And then, of course, he begins that process. And what happens? Judgment is poured out upon the earth. Where are the saints at this moment? They're in the sky. They're in the heavens. So like the Thessalonians... You and I should be waiting up for the coming of the Lord. Waiting for him to appear. appear. You know what a great church this was when you think about it. No wonder Paul gave thanks for them. For their energetic service. For their election. For their exemplary conduct. For their evangelistic endeavor. And their expectancy concerning the Lord's return. And in the light of what we see here, we have to ask ourselves, do we match up to them? Does our church match up to that? The Thessalonians set a very high standard for us as believers. They were examples not just to the churches of their time, but the churches of every time. Not just to the churches in their neighborhood, but the churches in every part of the world. And may the Lord enable us and indeed grace us to be able to show the same degree of energy in our ministry and the same exemplary behavior in our conduct and the same evangelistic fervor that was witnessed in this church and the same expectancy as every single day we say to ourselves, this is the day that the Lord might come. I'm waiting up for him. I'm looking for him. I'm anticipating him. I'm expecting him. And therefore today, I will be sure to serve him. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening. Well, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer tonight. And uh, we have several things to